All right, thank you, Lucas. Keep your Bibles open to 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'm wondering if any of you here this morning have unfinished projects around your house. Um, I, I have many unfinished projects around our house. Um, I still have a couple of cords of firewood that is waiting to be split and stacked um, that should have been done last fall. Um, I have at least four or five large pine trees that are either dead or dying that are waiting for me to cut them down. I have flooring sitting in our storage waiting to be installed into our kitchen and dining room. Um, my dear wife has been patiently waiting for 13 years for me to put up backsplash in our kitchen, and she is still waiting. I didn't say patiently waiting, I said waiting. Um, she is patiently waiting. She, actually, I didn't mean that to be a slam against her. She is patiently waiting. I'm just emphasizing I haven't done it yet, and I need to do it. Our attic needs additional insulation. The siding on our house is waiting for a fresh coat of stain. Um, we have windows in our living room that are desperately in need of change and in need of replacement. Um, the concrete on our patio is cracked and sinking. I could go on if you want me to, um, but you... I think get my point. I have a lot of projects to finish. Um, and I don't like unfinished projects. I'm anxious to finish work that has been started or that is waiting to be started. But I also enjoy the work. Um, maybe you can relate. Now, if that is true for our house, it's even more true for my spiritual life. Uh, spiritually speaking, I still have a lot of growing to do in my life. When the, the light of God's word shines on my life, I see many ways I need to grow as a man, as a husband, of, a father of adult children, a, a pastor, teacher, a leader, a communicator, a community member, part of this church community, a student of God's word, as a follower of Jesus. It, it can be very humbling to see where you fall short, but it's also good and encouraging to know that God is at work in our lives, even in hard experiences for our good. It is, in fact, true that all of God's children will continue to mature until Jesus comes again or God calls us home. God saved me at the age of 20. He started a good work in me, and he is committed to finishing that work in me. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 24 is one verse where... Our faithful, we're told, our faithful Father, our faithful God will finish the work that he started 
in me. That is a verse that really gives us great hope. Now, while this progressive sanctification, that's that process of growing and changing, while progressive sanctification is completely, is ultimately accomplished because of the faithfulness of Jesus, you and I bear responsibility to be diligent and to be faithful in making every effort to grow and change. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 is one verse that makes that truth crystal clear. There, there we learn that God has given to us everything that we need for life and godliness, and because of that, we are commanded to make every effort to grow and change, to be more and more reflecting the character of Christ. We, we do that with the very strength that he provides, and that process of growing and changing ought to be something that, in fact, we want and even enjoy. In fact, if we want to be faithful to be, if we want to be faithful to Jesus till the end, we must continue to grow and change. Uh, we can never stay status quo. We will never reach a plateau where we can say we have arrived. Being faithful to Jesus means we will continue to grow and change. But, but what does that include? Um, what does that look like? In this first letter written to Timothy by the Apostle Paul, Timothy is charged with the responsibility to not let certain men teach false doctrine. Paul tells Timothy to stop men from teaching a distorted gospel. And we have learned that a false gospel will not bring about a changed life. But when the true gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed and believed, people are saved and they begin to change. Good fruit will continue to grow when branches are attached to the vine. Uh, Paul has warned Timothy about false teachers. And now, as we near the end of this letter... Paul instructs Timothy how to be different, how to grow and mature, how to be faithful. Paul writes to Timothy because he is a leader in the church. So the first application of this instruction is for spiritual leaders in the church, for the elders. But it's not just for them. It's also for every member of the church. Spiritual leaders should live in such a way that every member of the body learns how to follow Jesus, which means continuing to grow and change, to be faithful to Jesus to the end. And so with that in mind, um, we learn in verse 11 of chapter 6 here in 1 Timothy, two things that will be true of those who are faithful uh, in following Jesus. So being, being faithful to Jesus means, first of all, you flee these things. Uh, verse 11 says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. What things? Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. But first notice that Paul refers to Timothy as a man of God. And he even says, O man of God. And he does this to draw a sharp contrast between Timothy and the false teachers from the preceding verses. Timothy 
is to be radically different than false teachers. There, there are, in fact, only two places in the New Testament where someone is referred to as a man of God, here in 2 Timothy 3.17. But man of God has a rich background. In fact, man of God is used 76 times in the Old Testament to refer to people like Moses and Elijah and Elisha and David and men who were given a commission to speak God's message. As one commentator said, it's not that Paul's trying uh, to say Timothy is the new Moses, but he does, and I quote, invest Timothy's role and position with the gravity of a tradition in which God leads his people through chosen shepherds and teachers of his word, end of quote. So there, there is a weightiness that is given to Timothy to Timothy's role as an elder. Um, you, you hear that again in Paul's second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, and I quote, Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. I mean, if we stop there, you... You just feel the weight of the responsibility of what he is about to say. And then in, in verse 2, he says this, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete, complete patience and teaching. So T Timothy obviously needed to hear this, but so did the entire church. T Timothy was often timid and the church was often easily led astray by false teachers. So paying attention to men who are proclaiming the sound words of Jesus that accords with godliness is vital. And that's why Paul tells Timothy to flee these things. What things? Well, first of all, in the preceding verse, verse 10, Paul exposed the false teachers who were lovers of money. The, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Paul warned Timothy and the church to reject leaders who were driven to get rich. So watch out for those who love money and all that it can give. Run hard away from those with a drive to get rich. But let, let me remind you, money is not the problem. It's the love of money. Being rich is not the problem. God has blessed some with more than others, but it's a heart that loves money more than God. Uh, later in chapter 6, Paul gives some specific instructions to those who love God more than money and are, in fact, rich. And so stay tuned for that. But here, Paul tells Timothy and the church to flee Flee a love of money. Um, but it's likely that Paul is also referring to a list of other characteristics uh, just mentioned in verses 4 and 5. Lucas already read them, such as flee a different doctrine, uh, flee a false doctrine, a, a, fa a false gospel. Run, run away from teaching that does not accord with or produce godliness. Um, Flee pride and eagerness to jump into controversy and quarrel. Uh, s some people just think they know it all and they're the ones who often love to stir things up. 
Paul says, flee pride and a craving for always being right. Flee envy and dissension. Have nothing to do with slander that causes evil suspicions. Flee a spirit that creates constant friction. Flee those who have lots of ideas but are devoid of truth. Um, Maybe you could summarize all of this by saying, flee a cantankerous spirit. Uh, These are the kinds of things that you are to flee. it's It's the kinds of things that grow when the gospel is missing. So if you're going to change and grow, there are certain things that you must run away from. Uh, when I think about fleeing from something or running away from something, I think about experiences I had as a young boy who loved to ride his bicycle everywhere. And unfortunately, there were often dogs that chased me and nipped at my heels when I was riding that bike. Um, I, I hated that. I loved to ride my bike, but I hated those dogs that were running after me, nip, nipping at my, my heels. Um, um, in those kinds of situations, and even when, this week when I was thinking through this, I, I can still almost... I mean, my heart begins to, to, to beat a little faster. I can still remember some of those experiences where I was, I was run off the road and I was going down on the shoulder of the road to get away from this dog. Um, there's one dog in particular uh, that I have in mind, but um, I, I was fleeing. I did everything I could to pedal as fast as I could to get away from danger. And that's the idea, I think, that comes to my mind when I think about the kinds of things that Paul tells us here to flee. Run away from these kinds of things. Don't let them be a part of the way in which you live. Now, in another of Paul's letters, he talks about putting off old ways of living, which is another way of saying flee these things. Um, Listen as I read Ephesians 4. 17 through 24, and I quote, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And now listen to this. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So, Paul often talks about putting off the old, but he doesn't stop there. He also talks about, he stresses the need to put on the new, the the corresponding new. So being faithful to Jesus means fleeing some things. And secondly, it means you pursue other things. You pursue these things. In, In the second half of verse 11, Paul says, 
Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Um, th- this is not an exhaustive list of characteristics that the gospel produces in our lives, but this list seems to show the necessary contrast to the false teachers that Timothy was dealing with there in Ephesus. And he says this, first, pursue righteousness. Now, a central truth to the gospel is that the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to us by faith. It's placed into our account by faith. So Jesus took our sin and gave us his righteousness. It's the righteousness of Jesus that is the basis of our acceptance before God. Without the righteousness of Jesus, we will never be reconciled to God and we will never begin to change. But the imputed righteousness of Jesus, I don't think is what this verse is referring to. When righteousness is included in a list of other character traits that we should pursue, it is referring to a life lived in conformity to God's revealed moral will. When when Paul tells Timothy to pursue righteousness, he's saying, pursue a way of life that is right in God's eyes. Uh, The character of our lives, the, the way we treat people with Fairness and justice ought to fit God's standards, not our own. When when we pursue righteousness, we want the character of our lives to be what God wants for our lives more than anything else. It's not important what I want, it's what God wants and what God deserves that becomes most important. And, And that's not a mystery to us. God has spoken, God reveals all that we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of his word. So pursue righteousness. Secondly, pursue godliness. Godliness is a way of life devoted to God. It it speaks of the genuine desire of our heart to follow and obey Jesus because you love him and because you want to honor him above all else. It, it is a life that has a genuine Godward devotion. Now, what's the alternative to being devoted to God? It, it is really being devoted to self. Um, you care most about you, what you want. You pursue your own agenda in life. But when we are born again, God gives us a new heart, And it's this new heart that desires to live every day devoted to and following and obeying Jesus above all else. And so he he teaches us to pursue godliness. Third, pursue faith. Now, Hebrews 11.6 tells us, Without faith it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. So, a life of faith believes what God has revealed about himself in the Bible. A life of faith believes Jesus is who he says he is. A life of faith believes the gospel. What God has done in Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection by his spirit to restore us to a right relationship with him becomes the central 
message and truth that governs our lives. A life of faith believes Jesus is our Savior and Lord. He is our good shepherd. He is our faithful high priest. He understands us. He helps us. He is our strength when we are weak. He protects us. He leads us. He feeds us and nourishes our soul. He transforms us. He changes us. He keeps us. The the Bible is chuck full with promises of how Jesus will care for us. And we believe him. We're, We're comforted and emboldened. We're given courage by his promises. Hebrews also says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so it's this faith that produces in us faithfulness in how we live and how we follow Jesus. So pursue faith. Fourth, pursue love. Uh, pursue love for God and love for neighbor. Jesus tells us that these are the two greatest commandments. All of the commands of Scripture can be summed up in these two commands, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. A, a proper understanding, a proper application of Scripture will lead you to love God and to love your neighbor. Um, not self. So you love God, you love your neighbor, not, not self. Our, our flesh, um, the, the old stubborn patterns of sin that remain, even in the life of a believer, our, our flesh is sinfully bent toward prioritizing self. The, the Spirit produces in us not a desire for self, but a desire to first prioritize God and and if we love God, we will also learn to love neighbor. I, I love how Philippians 2, 1 through 4 says it, and I quote, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, it's his love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I, I would argue that if we could do that perfectly, if we look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. If we could do that perfectly, we would eliminate nearly all of the problems that we have in relationships. So, Paul tells Timothy, pursue love. Fifth, pursue steadfastness. Uh, steadfastness, says one Greek lexicon, is the capacity to hold out or to bear up in the face of difficulty. It's patience, endurance, fortitude, and perseverance. It's patient waiting. I kind of like that definition of it. It's steadfastness is patient waiting, which 
really is love. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 begins by saying love is patient. So life, life gets hard sometimes, doesn't it? Um, I know I don't have to convince any of you of that. We face unplanned health problems. We experience weakness and sickness. We face temptation from the evil one. We face enticements from the world. Our sinful flesh can have long, stubborn patterns of sin. We experience brokenness in relationships. We sin against each other. Others sin against us. Uh, we, we are sometimes slow to repent. We can be slow to change. Uh, we can also face persecution in various forms from people who hate Jesus. The, the world doesn't always welcome your desire to live a righteous life. Uh, Jesus warned us, if the world hated me, it will also hate you. Now, I, I'm not trying to be pessimistic, but realistic, that all of us face problems. Um, often we are the problem, but we can also live with people who cause problems. And the, the good news is that genuine born-again believers will grow and change. More and more, they will reflect the character of Jesus. But that often, that often happens slowly. <laughs> We don't go from A to Z overnight. Um, I know most of you have probably already heard, but uh, Dr. Hoke in seminary began a lecture one day by standing on that side of the room, and he took one step, and he said, the Christian life is a walk, not a fly. He took another step and said, the Christian life is a walk, not a fly. He took another step he said, the Christian life is a walk, not a fly. And he did that from one side of the room to the other side of the room. And um, he made his point. It's a point that I still remember to this day. And the point is this, that we, we have to be patient with that work of progressive sanctification in our own lives, but also in the lives of other people. Because change doesn't happen. We don't go from A to Z overnight. Change comes slowly most of the time. So as you live in a broken world and as you constantly look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith, the author and perfecter of the faith of others that you love, you must strive to have patient endurance in your Christian life and in your relationships. You must not give up on the work Jesus is doing in you or in your family or in your church. We must cling to the promise that Jesus will finish the work that he has started in us. L listen to 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. That's the best part of it. He is faithful. He will surely do it. So th this is why we can have a patient, persistent endurance. This is why we can have steadfastness as we 
think about what can sometimes be slow growth in our own lives, but also as we live with others who experience slow growth. The faithfulness of God is why we should not quit on the work that he is doing in us and in others. So pursue steadfastness. And then finally, number six, pursue gentleness. If we are called to pursue patient endurance in relationships, it makes perfect sense to also pursue gentleness. Because gentleness is the opposite of being overbearing in relationships. Gentleness is the opposite of being domineering or insisting on our own way or being harsh in our dealings with people. When, when you are gentle, you care about how your life and your words impact other people. When you are gentle, it, it's safe for people to entrust their lives to you because they know you will care for them in ways that will be for their good and for God's glory. Um, l- l- listen as I read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-8. through 8. Here we find Paul being, the Apostle Paul being strong and courageous, fearless in the face of stiff opposition, but also tender and gentle in nurturing the faith of those that he ministered to. Listen as I read, and I quote, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but Though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts." For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Now listen to this. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you have become dear to us. That that is a great picture of a strong and tender man caring for the life of people entrusted to his care. Paul wasn't domineering and harsh. Paul wasn't like a bull in a china uh, shop. His Interactions with people didn't blow them out of the water, but in fact nurtured them to health. And I want you to know that the New Testament makes a big deal about gentleness. It's maybe not a characteristic that the world esteems highly, but the New Testament makes a big deal about gentleness. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and, uh, and learn from me, for I am, this is Jesus saying this, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
Um, when Paul entreated the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 10.1, he said, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. In Philippians 2, 3 and 4, again, we are exhorted to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This was the attitude of Christ that we are to follow more and more. Uh, Galatians 5.23 teaches us that gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 6.1 teaches us that we restore other people caught in the trap of sin with gentleness. Colossians 3.12 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, gentleness or meekness and patience. Ephesians 4, 1 and 2, Therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So pursue righteousness, pursue godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Flee the love of money, flee pride and a cantankerous spirit, and pursue Christ. Now when I think of pursuing something, I think of an experience I had as a child in my parents' garden. I didn't call it my garden. I call it my parents' garden. I'll remind you I was slave labor uh, for my kids in their big, huge garden. But we were doing the weeding of this particular garden, bent over to pull out those stubborn, long-rooted weeds. And out of the corner of my eye, I, I saw something that I had never seen before. My mother running at breakneck speed across the garden. <laughs> she, she had abandoned any fear of caution and was running hard after something, but I didn't know what. Well, as it turned out, my three-year-old sister had been playing in the car. Uh, it, was a, it wasn't automatic, it was a standard shift car, and... As she was standing behind the wheel playing in the car, she inadvertently kicked the car out of gear and it started rolling backwards and the, the driveway's on a hill. And she was rolling backwards, heading straight for the farm pond that was just uh, not far away. And so my mom saw this and my mom was, I mean, I've never seen my mom move like she did and she was heading over to the car. Fortunately, the, the car hit the one post. It was a telephone pole. It backed in and it smashed into the telephone pole, which was better than going into the pond. But my, my mom loved uh, her daughter, uh, my sister. And she, she wanted to be there as quickly as she could to provide care protection for, for uh, her, her daughter. Um, there... 
There are some things in life that we must flee from, and there are other things that we must pursue. We, we, must, we must go hard after some things. So flee a love of money, flee a cantankerous spirit, pursue with all of your might righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. These These things that you are to pursue are the kinds of things that the gospel produces in the lives of people who are born again and following Jesus. So as we close this morning, my question for you is this. What what is growing in your life? Is there good fruit growing In your life, or are there prickly thorns? Um, Sometimes people think of themselves as Christians because they prayed a prayer years ago. I want to suggest praying a prayer doesn't save you, but faith in Jesus Christ does. And when faith in Jesus Christ is present, good fruit will be growing. God has given his children everything that we need to grow and change. And because of that, we are commanded to work hard at growing and changing. But it is a work that we should desire, kind of like the work on my house. There's a lot of it. And some of it's hard, but I enjoy it. We, we should enjoy this work of growing and changing. So are you chasing hard after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness? I hope that you are. Um, I'd love to help you in that endeavor because that's how you will be faithful to Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the way that you work in our life. Thank you for the the good work that you've started in us, the work that you did through Jesus to rescue us from the guilt of our sin. Thank you for your spirit that you've given to us who have repented and believed, those who've been born again and who put their trust in Jesus alone for salvation. Father, thank you that... You, though you have given us everything we need, you, you call us, you, you command us to work hard at growing and changing. So, Father, help us to do that. Give us willing hearts to see, to, to be humble, to be honest about where we fall short. But, Lord, give us the kind of courage and hope that we need so that we will keep growing, keep changing. Father, help us to do that until the day that we die, till the day that we're ushered into your presence, till the day when we will be made perfect once and for all. We look forward to that day, but till then, help us. Help us as people here at this church who live in relationship with one another. Help us to be patient with one another. Help us to wait with persistent um, endurance so that Uh, we, as we look to you, we know that you will finish the work that you've started in all of us. 
And so, Lord, help us to grow and change. Help us to follow Jesus together. We pray this in the wonderful name of our Savior. Amen.